This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Father, we thank you that you're a God who speaks. We thank you that this word is profoundly relevant to our lives. And we ask now that amidst the noise, amidst the messages, Amidst the myriad of things that are trying to shape us and form us, we pray that in the next 40 minutes, that you might still our busy, quiet souls, our busy, hectic souls, help them to be quiet for just a moment to receive what you have to say to us. Would you shape us? Would you form us to be the people that you call us to be for your glory and for, good, for the good of this world? We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen, amen. You know, it's, uh, it's kind of cool to be able to commission the uni students this morning, but it raises a fairly important question for us. If we're commissioning students and sending them onto campus as everyday missionaries, what is the place of faith in the public square, like a university campus? What is the place of faith in... The workplace, what is the place of faith when it comes to politics? Is our faith relevant? Can can we live this faith out in the public square? The answer, of course, according to our culture is no. Faith is a private matter, and you should keep it that way. It's one of the reasons why people hate Tony Abbott so much, not just because of his views, but also because he seems to be pushing his religious views on our culture. So the message is, your faith, what you believe, is irrelevant. It's a private matter. Keep it to yourself. Keep it out of the workplace. Keep it out of the uni campus and keep it out of politics. And I think many Christians as well would believe that that is true. Our faith really is just a private matter. It has no place. Christians ought not to exert any sense of influence on culture and on world. But the problem is that we don't take our cues from our culture. We take our cues from our king, from Jesus. And he says two things of us in this passage here in Matthew chapter 5 that profoundly contradict the reality of our culture that says faith is private. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. I want to submit to you this morning that in fact, as Christians, we are to create an entirely new culture a counterculture that offers a whole new way of living, a whole new way of being human to the watching world around us. Christians have exerted huge influence over the world, over culture, over the centuries. In fact, a guy by the name of Kenneth Latourette in a seven-volume work on church history writes this. It's a long quote, but it's a really good one. So... This is what he says. No life ever lived on this planet has been so influential in the affairs of men like the life of Jesus Christ. From that brief life and its apparent frustration has flowed a more powerful force for the triumphant waging of man's long battle than any other ever known by the human race. By it, millions have been lifted from illiteracy and ignorance and have been placed upon the road of growing intellectual freedom and control over the physical environment. 
It has done more to allay the physical ills of disease and famine than any other impulse known to man. It has emancipated millions from traditional slavery and millions of others from addictions to vice. It has protected tens of millions in exploitation by their fellows. It has been the most fruitful source of movement to lessen the horrors of war and to put the relations of men and nations on the basis of justice and peace. A perfect history of the church? Not by any stretch of the measure. We've got plenty of skeletons and darkness in our closet, but the most powerful influence on the affairs of humanity, bar none the manifesto that Jesus gives us as his people. Do you know that um, the group of people that influences our society, that does the most good in our society, if you were to take a guess at which group of people that would be, well, Sydney Morning Herald wrote uh, an article on the 7th of December 2012 saying it's religious groups, religious groups that contribute the most good to our society. In fact, research that was done in both um, Australia and the UK and US showed that faith-based organizations made up a disproportionate percentage of the volunteers of the people who are serving our society. They also showed that um, people of faith tended to concentrate in what are known as the caring professions, healthcare, education, social services and welfare. They also listed in that article uh, a research report done by the ANU, the Australian National University, that said people of faith were more likely to give to charities, including non-religious charities, and they were more likely to donate blood. Now, I don't say that to boast, even though it's almost boast-worthy, isn't it? It's very rare that we get good press as Christians today. But isn't it interesting that even sometimes, and it's a very rare moment, the Sydney Morning Herald will recognize that the people of God are being who we ought to be. Influences for good in our culture. Influences for good in our society. We are salt. We are light. That is who we are to be. And at the heart of this new kingdom manifesto that Jesus gives for his disciples is a call for the people of God to live such distinct lives, such holy lives, such beautiful lives, lives of good works, that it would shape our culture and our society for good. So Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're still kind of in the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus here is talking to his disciples and he, he gives them two identity statements as to who they are. And then he takes one of those identity statements, you are the light of the world, and he gives two practical uh, examples of what that looks like. And then he tells them, live this out. Live this out. So Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are iodized table salt. You are the salt of 
the earth. You know, when, um, when Tash, my wife, was pregnant with Judah, she, uh, she, had, she was sick from work one day, and she went to the shop to order a, a milkshake, and she fainted in the shops and, and smacked her head and had to go to hospital and get stitches. And as a result of that head injury, she actually lost her sense of taste. And so all of a sudden, our food became incredibly salty <laughs> and slightly spicy. She'd never really enjoyed either of those two things prior to that moment, but all of a sudden there was a lot of salt in the food. Why? Because it draws out flavor. But in the first century, salt was not so much about flavor. It was actually about preserving. You see, in a world where there were no fridges and no way of preserving food, salt was the method that they used. What salt does is it would dry the surface of a, a meat or a food product, and a dry surface means there's no moisture, which means that bacteria, which requires moisture, can't grow on the surface of that food. And so they would literally just cover things in salt. And so this metaphor that Jesus uses here of the church, of being the salt of the earth, is actually a metaphor that calls us to be people that would preserve goodness. Preserve the things that God says in this world are right and good to stop things going off. It means that the people of God ought to stand against moral decay. Not in a self-righteous, judgmental fashion, but stand for what God deems is right and good. It means we ought to stand against things like slavery, like sex trafficking, like abortion, like domestic violence. We stand against those things as people who are salt, the salt of the earth. You know, we've been, um, Brad Kernerman and I have been listening to this incredible podcast the last couple of weeks called This Cultural Moment. And it's by um, two guys, John Mark Kermer, who's a pastor in Portland, Oregon, and a, a pastor in Melbourne called Mark Sayers, pastor of church called Red Church. Both of these guys find themselves in contexts that are so similar to Sydney. And this, the stuff that they're talking about this podcast is amazing. So I'm going to share it on our Facebook page this afternoon. Mindful that 90% of my sermon resource material is going to come from this podcast in the next three months. So listen to it all and I'll repeat it for you on the coming Sundays. But in this, in this podcast, in a recent one, they were talking about how the church's posture towards culture has shifted over time. As we think about engaging our culture as missionaries, our posture has shifted. So traditionally, there was the fundamentalist posture that said, culture is bad, culture is wicked, culture is evil. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. And so we're going to gather together in a holy huddle and protect ourselves from the evil of the culture that exists out there. And the reaction to that fundamentalist movement that the vast broad sweep of evangelicalism and the missional movement has said we need to get out of the holy huddle, we need to get out of the four walls of a church and get into the culture. And our response to that has been, we need to be relevant. We need to be relevant. And so we've worked really hard at making sure that what we do as a church engages with the culture around us. And so we've done everything that we can think of to update Jesus in the hopes that it would burst out into revival. But the problem is, often the missional posture and the evangelical posture has sent God's people into the world to be relevant without equipping them with the tools to be distinct and holy. 
And when we don't do those two things, what we actually end up being is just like the culture around us and irrelevant. We are salt that loses its saltiness. Mark Sayers says this in the podcast. He said, I went to the pub to make them more like Jesus and all that happened was that I became more like the people at the pub. Now, if any church is in danger of falling into that trap, it's the church that was planted and started in a pub and a church that sends and commissions people to be missionaries in the everyday stuff of life. It kicks you out of this building and says, go to all of the corners of the world, to the pubs, the sporting teams, the nightclubs, the bars, the... Right? And so... If there's ever a church that's in danger of losing its saltiness, it's us. Salt that loses its saltiness becomes ineffective. Chuck it out. It's not going to preserve food. It's going to make it dirty. Jesus says we are the salt of the earth. We preserve what is good in this world. That's the first identity statement that Jesus gives us. The second one He says there in verse 14, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Hit it, Catherine. This is what he says. You are the light. Oh, hello. I can see you all now. You can see me. You are the light of the world. Light. Light has this property of contrast of shining in a spot that pushes the darkness away. This metaphor is a metaphor for truth in Scripture. That light is about truth and darkness is about falsehood. Light reveals. Light creates contrast. A contrast between what is true and what is false. This is a profound statement of who we are, a profound statement of identity. And it's a rich fulfillment of promise. This is what the Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet says in Isaiah chapter 60. Thank you, production team. Isaiah 60 verse 1. God speaking to his people, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, Darkness shall cover the earth, a thick darkness the peoples, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. You see, God's intended purpose for his people was always. That we would be distinct, that people would be drawn to the light of the people of God. They were always meant to have this attractive pull to them, their character, their worship, their holiness, their lives. And that's why it's so sad when you flick through the pages of the Old Testament and all you see time and time again, bar a few glowing examples, is Israel's idolatry and Israel's unfaithfulness and Israel's failure to be the people that God called them to be, light. And how sad when the church repeats the errors of the people of God. Jesus says we are the light of the world. You notice this isn't a statement of desire. He doesn't say, 
I want you to be the light of the world. I want you to try to be the light. He, he says, you are the light. That's a statement of identity. This is who you are. This is not what you do. This is not what you attempt. This is who you are. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. These metaphors describe so much of what it is to be a Christian. That as a disciple of Jesus, we live lives that are distinct from the world around us. We've been radically reshaped by this good news message, the gospel. And it means that our lives are noticeable. They're different. If we are the light of the world, it means we are people of truth, of revelation, and we bring that to our world. But you know what makes this statement even more profound? You are the light of the world. Is that it's actually Jesus who was the light of the world. This is what he says in John 8, 12. Jesus speaking, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Or in John chapter 1, he says, true light has come into the world. And it gives light to everyone. Can you think of the, um, those glow stickers that you used to stick on the roof as a kid? You know the ones, the little stars? You'd stick them around your light. And then as the sun came through the curtains in the day and as your light was flicked on, it would absorb the light that was around it. And you'd turn that light off at night. And your, your roof would light up with these glow stars across the roof. Anyone... Anyone do that? We're too minimalist now to do that. Our parenting is way too cool. to, st- And we're all renters. We're like, I don't want to ruin the paint on the roof. That's the kind of light that we have. It's a derived light. It's the light of Jesus in us. And so in the end, it's not so much about the actions that we do that cause people to stop and look and be attracted. It's actually Jesus shining through us. People don't just see our good works. People actually see the true light of the world, Jesus, through what we do. It's important for us to to grasp that, that our identity always precedes our activity. Who we are always precedes what we do. If we get that wrong, we're going to mess the whole thing up. So take, for example, the four questions that we ask in our gospel triplets. If you're in a gospel triplet, amazing. If you're not in one, get in one. In our gospel triplets, we ask these four questions. Who is God? What has he done? And as a result of that, who are we and what do we do? Who is Jesus? He is the light of the world. What has he done? He has shone his light into our hearts. He has pushed back the darkness of our lives. As a result of this, who are we? We are the light of the world, a derived light. And what do we do? We shine. We shine our lights. Our identity always precedes our activity. And it's actually crazy that Jesus will call us the light of the world. The church would never appropriate that identity on themselves. It would be audacious of us to claim that if Jesus had not given that to us. You are the light of the world. What a privilege. What a privilege to shine the light of the truth of the good news of Jesus to the world around us.
So Paul says in Ephesians 5, he says, live as children of light. Or he says the same thing in Philippians 2.15. He says, in the darkness of this world, let your light shine like stars in the universe. Shine your light. That is our identity. Church, we are light. The light of the world, the salt of the earth. Do you consider yourself that? Is that what you think about when you, when you think about gospel community, about this church? That we are light. That we are placed here for the purpose of influencing and shaping this world for its good. Or perhaps we've swallowed the cultural lie that the church is entirely irrelevant. And that faith is a private matter. And instead of believing what Jesus says about us, we've chosen to believe what our world says. We're light. We're the light of the world. You know, McCrindle Research says that the number one reason why Australians don't attend church is because they think it is irrelevant to their lives. I'll tell you why they don't think it's irrelevant. They don't think it's irrelevant because of the form of church, because of the way we do church. Everyone has a personal preference about how church is done. Traditional hymns, you know, organs, that kind of stuff, or contemporary, like, you know. I mean, people don't avoid anchor because, uh, you know, we do church in a rock venue. We've got great coffee and amazing morning tea, and everyone's young and cool, and we've got tattoos and Insta story, you know, like... I mean, we, at that level, we look like everyone else around us. People don't avoid church because we look irrelevant, because we seem... People avoid church because the way that we live our lives looks no different from those around us. There's no holiness. There's nothing really distinct about our lives that would cause people to look and say, whoa, that is noticeably different from the way everyone else is living. But the converse is actually also true. What McCrindle Research found is that the thing that Australians appreciate most is Christians who live an authentic faith. Christians actually live out what they say they believe, where belief and behavior actually match. So what a challenge that is for us, church, to be who Jesus has actually called us to be. The light of the world. You know, in a world that is obsessed with three things. Sex, power, and money. A really simple, but sometimes difficult way to be entirely countercultural when it comes to sex, power, and money is to live a life of faithfulness, is to live a life of service, and is to live a life of generosity. If we just did those three things, faithfulness, service, and generosity, we would begin to look profoundly different from the world around us. You remember when I was studying at, at uni, um, Tash and I got engaged, and my, all the people in my course flipped out. They were like, you're getting married? You're way too young to get married. I was like, I'm 27. It's not actually that young. Um, but I think they thought I was 21 because I was at uni as a mature age student and they didn't really believe that I was 27. I literally had to show them my driver's license. Oh, no, seriously, guys, I finished school 10 years ago. 
I'm so over the, the nightclubbing in North Sydney. It was, you know, like I'm not coming with you, sorry. But when, when we told people that we were getting married and engaged, and they knew that I was a Christian, the, the next sheepish question I often got asked was this. Oh, hey, man, I, like, I don't want to pry too much, and I don't want to be offensive, but are you guys like saving yourselves for marriage? And I was like, yeah, we are. That's, I mean, that's what we do. We're Christians, you know. And people thought I was crazy. They literally thought I was crazy. And it wasn't until the very last day of uni. I remember we, were, um, we had a uni ball at the end of our, our degree. We all celebrated and partied. And um, There's a couple of guys. We um, had showers and were getting changed at uni. And one of the guys said to me, he said, he said hey, man, I was just, you know what? I just wanted to say I really respect you. I was like, oh, thanks. Why? He said, because... Everyone laughed at you when you said, you know, you were saving yourself for marriage, but I really respect the fact that you're willing to, to do that. I really respect the fact that your faith is genuine. Now, look, to be honest, it's not always that easy, is it, to pursue holiness? But that was a fairly simple thing, a fairly simple way to be completely countercultural to the rest of the people in that uni degree. We are light. It's who we are as God's people. We're to let our light shine. And what Jesus does next is he, he helps us understand that metaphor of light by giving two examples or two pictures of how light works, of how it ought to operate. This is what he says in verse 14. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. A city on a hill is noticeable. Before we moved to, uh, to Erskineville, Tash and I used to live in Mount Druitt. And we had a west-facing apartment that looked all the way out to the Blue Mountains. Now, yes, we had a view of Mount, Mount Druitt train station and Bunnings and Minchinbury either side. But if you blocked those two things out, you had a view of the Blue Mountains. And on a clear night, you could stand on our balcony and look out to the Blue Mountains and see... It wasn't even a city. I mean, it's just, it's Glenbrook, right? I'm sorry, Glenbrook's, it's, it's a little suburb, right? You could see Glenbrook. You could see the, the lower Blue Mountains suburbs and the lights shining in the darkness. That's what Jesus is saying. A city that's set on a hill is unmistakably noticeable. The second image he gives there is that of a lamp on a stand. Remember, the first century, there's no electricity. If we want light, we just flick a switch. In the first century, you would light a lamp or light a candle. It's not romantic. It's not saved for blackouts. It's an everyday thing. You light the lamp, and what the lamp does is it gives light to the house. It shines so that you can see what you're doing. And so it's illogical then to light a lamp so that you can see what you're doing and then hide it under a bowl or put it under the couch. You can't see it. It is ineffective at that point. You know what this means for us? If, if we are the light of the world, what that means is that you cannot be an invisible Christian. You can't hide. We're called to let our light shine. Hiding, in fact, is a denial of who we are as God's people. It's a denial of our identity. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous German pastor, who lived throughout the Nazi regime, had the real prospect of hiding his faith. 
along with a number of other pastors who just seem to follow with the flow of culture and accept what the Nazi regime was peddling as its propaganda, Dietrich Bonhoeffer decided to stand against the flow. And he says this, Flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. How do we conceal our light? Well, perhaps we conceal it with our compromise, with our behavior that just doesn't seem to match up with our belief at all, with our hypocrisy, by living in ways that are no different to those around us. Perhaps we conceal our light with our laziness. We're so safe and comfortable in the Christian huddle that we never really get out there. The thing with light is it needs contrast to work. It means we need to step out into the darkness and to shine. Perhaps we smother our light with fear. We're so afraid of the rejection of the culture. We're so addicted to the idea of being relevant that we never really let our distinctives show. Well, you know, the gospel covers our compromise. And it quickens our lazy feet and it gives us confidence in fear. We are the light of the world. So let your light shine. Well, Jesus, having given these two identity statements and then two examples of what it looks like to let light shine, says to them, go and do it. This is what he says in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your, God, your Father who is in heaven. In the same way as what? In the same way as a city on a hill is unmistakably noticeable. In the same way as a lamp shines in a room to bring light to the room. Let your light shine. Live lives that are unmistakably Christian and distinct, and holy, and attractive. Let your light shine, not secretly, not shamefully, not hiding, boldly, courageously, noticeably. And can I say, I feel like there are so many of you who are doing that. The stories that we hear coming through gospel communities, the stories that get filtered back to us through staff meetings, there's so many people who are living this way where colleagues would turn to them and say, I, I can't help but notice, but you just don't seem to rip people down. You don't seem to gossip and slander people at work. Why is that? Think of the single person who is pursuing contentment in Jesus and not seeking a life that compromises their deepest held beliefs. So think of the person who suffers deep loss, and yet in that tragedy, there is a, a sense of joy and a deep trust in God. And just on that, this week, uh, I don't know if you knew Amy Cooper's mum, she passed away of cancer, and they had her funeral down at Fig Tree Anglican this week. So you pray for Amy and Liam and their extended family. I would really appreciate their prayers. But when Christians walk through suffering, and don't pretend, like it's not pretending that it doesn't hurt, and this isn't hard, 
But when we walk through suffering and we're able to cling to the goodness of God and the glory of God and hold those two things with joy, that is so countercultural. So countercultural. Our lives offer, at that point, a compelling alternative, a new way for us to be human. And our influence on this culture, on this world, depends on our character, where our belief and our behavior align and are met. But maybe as you've been reading that, you think, well, hang on a second. I have a few objections that come to mind. And the first objection is that Jesus says just a few verses later on, don't do your righteous acts to be seen. Isn't he contradicting himself here? Like, How can we believe Jesus if he says, live like lights, that your good works may be seen, and then a few verses later he says, don't do your works of righteousness to be seen. Well, there's a world of difference between one who does things for their glory to be noticed like the religious leaders who would stand on the street corner and pray loud prayers and lift their heads, like the the Pharisee in Luke 18 who would come and publicly pray and look around and say, God, I thank you that I'm not like all these other people. It's a world of difference between that and someone who seeks to live a life of consistency with their beliefs. Because that life is actually not for your glory. It's for God's. And so in this beautiful way of we are the light of the world, it's a derived light, but our light actually points people back to God. It's not about us in the end. And so when Jesus says, don't do your deeds of righteousness to be seen, he's speaking to religious self-righteousness. Matthew chapter 5, he's saying, do this in the context of bringing glory to your Father. But the second objection would be, well, isn't this just being nice? We're not called to be nice. We're called to be people who proclaim the truth. And sometimes we need not to be nice to do that. It's true. We are called to proclaim. And we're not just social reformers. The Christian church is far more, as Jerusha reminded us this morning, this is more than just social reform. This is heart transformation. But as we look at the life of Jesus and his ministry, word and deed always go hand in hand. He lives out what he teaches. That saying, you know, people don't know how much, don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. It's cliche, but it's true. Word and deed always go hand in hand. This is not just about being nice. We're more than nice. You know, my hope is that we would live this out. That darkness and brokenness would be shattered in this city. That it would be filled with beacons of hope. Gospel communities and churches and individuals who are light in the darkness. That we would be communities of sacrifice and generosity and grace and repentance and holiness. Communities of righteousness, communities of hope, communities of peace, communities of love, communities of humility, and communities of proclamation of good news. That's that's the vision that Jesus gives us here in Matthew chapter 5. And so at Anchor, we use the phrase, 
living such phenomenal lives that it would demand an explanation. We want to be a church that we would live such phenomenal lives that it would demand an explanation. That people would look at the way we make decisions. That people would look at the way we spend our money. That people would look at the way we respond to suffering. That people would look at the way that we respond as Christians when we're opposed and maligned and scorned. And say, I have to know what drives this person because this is so different from anyone else I've ever met. Living such good lives that it would demand an explanation. And really what Jesus is going to go on to do for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is to give examples of exactly that. To give examples of what it looks like to be salt. To give examples of what it looks like to be light, to live this distinct, different, holy, countercultural, extraordinary life. And so verse 16, you kind of get to the, almost the end of the introduction of the sermon. But as he gets to the end, Jesus anticipates this objection to this new kind of authoritative teaching that he's about to deliver. You remember Jesus taught not as the teachers of the law and the scribes. Jesus taught with authority. He said, I tell you the truth. And so as Jesus is about to deliver this, the body of his sermon, he anticipates the objection that people would see his teaching and say, Jesus is placing himself above the law. He doesn't teach like the scribes who submitted themselves to the law. He says, I tell you. And so Jesus, anticipating that, says this in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the dot on top of an eye or a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This distinct living, this countercultural, this new way of being human is a righteousness that outdoes that of the Pharisees and the scribes. These were the most religious people in the first century. And for the first hearers of that, that is a shocking statement. I mean, the, the scribes and the Pharisees devoted their lives, their life mission was not just memorizing all 248 commands and 365 prohibitions, but, but avoiding them or doing them. That's what they lived for. That's what they were known for. And so what does Jesus mean? How on earth could you exceed that? Does that mean you've got to get 100% in the exam? Hoping that the scribes and the Pharisees would get 99? It's not what he means. Jesus demands a greater righteousness, not in degree, but in kind. You see, the kind of righteousness that Jesus is after is a different righteousness altogether. It's an inner righteousness. A righteousness that starts from the heart and works its way out into the lives of his people. And so what Jesus will spend the rest of the sermon doing, or at least in Matthew chapter 5, he will take an outward form of righteousness and he will drive us to the heart of that. He will say, you have heard that it was said. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they say this. But I tell you this, 
Jesus is after a different type of righteousness. It's the righteousness of the heart. And he will relentlessly pursue the heart. And in Matthew chapter 5, we get six contrasts. You've heard it was said, I tell you the truth. And all of those six contrasts are an example of this type of living that Jesus gives us. Distinct, holy, different. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And so for the next five or six weeks, we're going to give you really practical examples of what that looks like. But to close, I want to tell you a story. One that you're probably familiar with, that you've heard before. Maybe you've seen the movie about William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was a a young man who felt very discontent with his highly wealthy upbringing. And he felt that his walk was a public one. That's what he said. My walk is a public one. That is, he felt like the calling on his life was to live out who God wanted him to be in the public square as a politician. And the particular passion that God gave William Wilberforce was a passion for the abolition of the slave trade. Slavery was so entrenched in the culture that there were very few people who actually believed that you could do anything to end the slave trade. So much of power, so much of the economy, so much of what happened in the world was dependent on exploiting people. So much so that people just gave up and said, there's nothing we can do about it except for a few. And one of those people was William Wilberforce. He says this, So enormous, so dreadful, so irredeemable did the trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. I, from this time, determined that I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. William Wilberforce lived his life as a light to the world. He decided to push back against a very entrenched and established darkness. One that most people thought was unchangeable, immovable. And yet, Wilberforce, in the power of the Spirit, And the strength that God gave him sought to shine his light, sought to be salt that would preserve a culture from a moral atrocity of exploiting another human being. Now, not all of us are called to be William Wilberforce's. Some of you maybe, but every single one of us is called to live our faith out in the public, to be light, to be darkness. And to be honest with you, it really doesn't take that much to create contrast. In a dark place, all that's required is a very little bit of light. And so church, my encouragement, my challenge to you this week is to be light, to be salt, to take that small step of obedience and to live in such a way, such phenomenal lives, that people would demand an explanation from us. Why is it that you live this way? And so are Christians called to influence and shape culture? Of course we are. And it matters how we do it. 
But these two identity statements are so profound. Church, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And so go, let your light shine. We're going to respond to Jesus because what he has done is he's shone light into our hearts. He's pushed back the darkness of sin in our lives. And the only appropriate thing to do is to respond. And if we want to go out there tomorrow and shine our light, we better have spent some time in the presence of the light of the world, right? Worshipping him. We're going to do that in three ways. The first is we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Down the front are two stations. In the middle of the room are two stations with bread and grape juice. And we invite those of you who love Jesus, who have surrendered your lives to him, who want to be the light of the world, to come and participate in that reminder of the good news. Dip the bread in the grape juice, eat it, and remember that Jesus has pushed back the darkness in your life. Our prayer team will be up the back. They would love to pray for anyone who needs it. You can identify our prayer team with the orange lanyards around their neck, and they would love to pray for you, whatever it is this morning. There is nothing too big, there is nothing too small that you can't bring to God. They would love to pray for you and with you. And finally, we're going to respond in worship, singing of this Jesus who has so radically changed us and shaped us and pleading and praying that he would help us to be who he wants us to be. So I'm going to invite you to stand as we pray, as we respond. Let's stand together, church. Father God, we thank you this morning for who you call us to be. Your people. Light, salt. And we know we're so inadequate to this task, but we thank you for the good news of Jesus that washes our sins clean. And so we pray, God, would you help us to live authentic lives of repentance and obedience, not perfection, gospel grace-saturated lives that look so phenomenal, so different from our world that people would demand an explanation for the way we live. We need your spirit. Fill us, we pray. In your presence, like Moses who stood in your presence and as he came down, his face was glowing. We want to be your people would reflect Jesus to this city. We ask it in his strong name. God's people said, Amen.